If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Throughout history, societies have been captivated by the idea of evil women. But why? This is something that Professor Joanna Burke has been exploring in a series of Gresham College lectures. The lectures, which are free to watch at gresham.ac.uk, examine figures from Eve in the Bible to Myra Hindley to explore what they can tell us about society at the time. I spoke to Joanna to find out more. Your Gresham lectures interrogate the idea of the evil woman from Eve to Myra Hindley. So some of the women that you look at are mythical, some are fictional and some are historical. So when you were thinking about which women to include in a series called Evil Women, what were the parameters for inclusion? When I started to think about what I wanted to talk about here, you know, there's so many things I could have chosen. There's so many really quite obvious ones. For example, the role of women during the Holocaust, you know, watching and participating as their neighbours were taken to labour and extermination camps. I was also thinking of, you know, the the, the role of women in the, uh, the wars in the, in the former Yugoslavia and how they were very, very involved in the torture camps. I could have chosen you know, the women in, for example, the Democratic Republic of a Congo during that conflict, where something like 40% of the rapes that took place actually involved women as perpetrators. So there was a huge range of things I could have looked at. And in the end, I decided to take really just six kind of different kinds of evil that women participated in or were involved with. And so these are broad categories. So as you say, I started with, you know, I had to start really with the original kind of evil. I mean, Eve, who brought sin into the world, brought death into the world. So she was an obvious one to to start with. Then, of course, I moved to, well, witches, um, you know, the very big, 
big category of evil. And I chose here the sort of evil queen in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, then monstrous evil. I mean, people don't know about her very much. Amelia Dyer, she um, was responsible for the killing of around 400 um, infants in Victorian Britain. So this kind of monstrous evil, sexual evil, Matahari, responsible allegedly um, for the deaths of around 50,000 French soldiers through her treachery. So this is the treacherous sexual woman, institutional evil, Nurse Ratchet and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and then radical evil, the sadistic sexual uh, killer, um, uh, uh, Myra Hindley. So these, I thought, were kind of representative categories. And I think the other thing here is I had to think really carefully about what I actually meant by evil. This is something I wanted to ask you about because we should say before we go any further, you, you're not using the word evil unquestioningly here, are you? How do you think that we need to deconstruct that term to understand it better. Absolutely. I mean, the whole series of lectures problematize and question the way we talk about evil in itself, let alone female evil, because every generation sort of reinvents what they think is evil. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why this is so particularly interesting. And my kind of evil, I wasn't, I'm not interested really, at least not in this series, of natural evils or the, those sorts of, you know, like, um, earthquakes or great great natural disasters. I was interested in evil as a uh, as human agency. So my kind of evil is about what people do to harm other people. But of course, I problematize that. And throughout every lecture, asks, well, this person um, or this figure was uh, designated evil. Is that is that really how we want to think about this woman? Why do you think we've been so obsessed with evil women through history? You only have to look at tabloid papers, for example, to see how intrigued and horrified and captivated we are by women who fall into the category of, quote, evil. We're, we are fascinated with evil women. We're fascinated much more so than evil men. And I think one of the reasons for that is they not only do or allegedly do bad things, but they are transgressive. They transgress the fundamental issue of what we think popularly as, um, as femininity. And this makes them really, really intriguing. I think the other reason we are um, obsessed with evil women is because evil women or our designation of certain women as evil is really at the heart of the control of women within society, of patriarchal norms. So it's very important to keep women in their place. So we label certain women evil, we set them outside the feminine, we set them outside the human. And this enables us to then look at other women and say, just you be careful, because you could be next. And I think that is also why we're so fascinated by this concept. What are some of those gendered things that are some of the most evil things that women can do in, in the Western world? The most evil thing that a woman can do in different periods of history is break the norms of femininity, um, sort of cut through what they're supposed to be doing as women, as nurturers, as helpmates, um, as servants, as um, inferior 
uh, individuals to men and usurp some of that power that men are supposed to um, be the exclusive owners of. A good example here, I think, is the evil queen in Snow White. Um, because why is she considered so evil? She is considered so evil because she is She's taken some of the power that men have. Um, she roams the world freely. She is active. She is an agent. While Snow White is sort of the simpering little girl in the original story. Remember, she's 14 years of age. The simpering girl who, you know, is really happy to do all the housework <laughs> um, and to look after all the boys and all that sort of thing. She she stays at home and, and cleans and, and cooks, whereas the evil queen roams the world, the evil queen is also very interesting because she not only usurps male powers, but she actually uses female or traditionally female ways of nurturing people in ways that are, are meant to be harmful. So she tries to kill Snow White four times. Firstly, she tries to get a man to do it for her. Typical woman, typical woman, you know, here. Second, then, you know, she uses three things that women do to, to nurture. She uses the, the stays on, on, on um, Snow White to try and suffocate her. She combs Snow White's hair with this, this um, hairbrush that has formidable powers. And then she feeds her this poisoned apple. So these are traditionally womenly ways of nurturing. And yet, of course, she's using it for evil purposes. So she's really very interesting in that sense. And I think there's one other thing about the evil queen and Snow White that I think is really important. And that is that she's menopausal. She's this ancient old crone. She is the woman who is set outside what a woman is supposed to be. And, you know, we were talking a few minutes ago about, you know, the questioning of this evil thing, because one of the things I think I want to argue in my my, my talk on, on um, the evil queen and Snow White is that who's really evil in that, in that story? In that story, the real evil thing is actually that shimmering mirror, the misogynistic mirror who tells this beautiful, powerful older woman that she is ugly and therefore incites all this, this jealousy and this cruelty. It's interesting because that's quite a kind of empowering take on this evil woman. But some of the women you look at, I think, would be more problematic to offer a different perspective on. So I'm thinking of the women, especially who are involved in murders. So Amelia Dyer, particularly, who, who was a baby farmer, and Myra Hindley. I guess for each of these cases, you're applying a different lens in how you look at them. Amelia Dyer is probably the, the woman I look at who's less familiar to people today. But at the time, in the late 19th century, she was a, you know, widely known and her name was sort of synonymous for female evil, the woman who kills innocent babes. She, um, she was born into a, a decent, well-off, I mean, not, not, not rich, but a well-off. She trained as a nurse, and then she um, she married a, a man who was considerably her her senior, who was extremely violent to her, um, beat her up many many times. Today we would call her a battered woman, um, and she left him many times. And in order to make ends meet, um, she became what was known at the time as a baby farmer. So in other words, she would take in 
infants and um, and look after them for a small fee. Um, most of these infants, nearly all of these infants, in fact, were born out of wedlock. So their mothers were desperate. Their mothers could not um, take care of their their their, their children, they, they, these infants. So they would give her to baby farmers like Daya, who would then look after them. Now, these babies had such incredibly high death rates, um, something like, you know, three or five percent survived. In most cases, the baby farmers would um, simply neglect them. Um, so they they would give them morphine. So they slept all the time and were not hungry. And they basically eventually died. Um, now, Daya was different to, to most because, because instead of um, slowly killing them, a painful death of these young babies, she would take them and usually the same day strangle and um, kill them. Um, drown them. Um, and, you know, there was huge furore when all these suddenly one, one day, a number of these bodies floated to the surface. Um, and this, they started investigating her. She was eventually hung for, for, for what she, what she did. Um, but a very famous, a very famous case and really the shock and horror of this evil deed that she had done was very important in late 19th century and early 20th century movements against the cruel, against cruelty to children. Do you think that's why her case caught fire in the way it did? Because it reflected anxieties of the age about the treatment of children at the time? Her case excited huge amount of attention because it coincided with the establishment of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Um, it's very interesting here that the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals was established 50 years before this. Okay, So it took 50 years for a similar society to be established for the prevention of cruelty to children. And funnily enough, or perhaps not surprisingly, um, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children actually modelled itself explicitly on the equivalent society for animals. And indeed, the first case that was brought um, to, um, to court, um, the actual infant was actually described as a little animal. Um, um, so it coincided, you know, the, the discovery of these bodies coincided with something that was already happening in Victorian, late Victorian society at that time, this realisation that children were needed to be protected, that children suffered pain. You know, today we take it for granted that, in fact, children, infants experience pain. But in fact, even the top scientists of the 1870s and 1890s did not actually believe that young infants actually experienced or felt pain. They thought it was just when a child cried. Um, they thought it was just a reflex action like it was, they believed, for animals. So this co coincidence of increased interest in the sentience, uh, the ability of infants to feel, the development of a very powerful organization defending the rights of children. Um, and then, of course, her killing all these children. And incidentally, um, people knew that this was happening. So it was also exposed this huge um, problem of 
um, baby farming, that infants were being killed and actually a lot of people knew about it. So it kind of opened the gates for a real panic about the children, particularly the children of the poor. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Every generation creates evil um, in our, in different periods. And this really can tell us a lot about the status of women, the fears of women, and the ability of women themselves to challenge the societal pressures and constraints that they, that they face. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Each of the women that you choose to look at here, you're talking not just about the women, but what about what reaction to them can tell us about society at the time. And if we move forward to World War One, we get to Matahari, who was kind of branded with a real particular type of evil, a very sexualized, exoticized evil. What can you tell us about her life in reality and the way that the story of her life was constructed, which were two very different things? Yeah, I mean... Matahari is is really interesting because she, I mean she's so different from the other women I I, I speak about. Um, extremely intelligent, um, exceptionally beautiful, um, um, active, determined to live her own life. Like many of the women um, who are branded evil, she also married a man who was violent to her. She was a battered wife as well. Um, she was forced, therefore, to um, make her make a living herself in in a context where there weren't very good jobs for women. And she's regarded as evil because she used her sexual charms, she used her very eroticized dance in order to allegedly entrap men and spy um, um, for, for the Germans. And this was, you know, cast, when she was 
caught. She probably did do some spying, actually, um, but probably very insignificant in terms of uh, what she was able to, um, what she's able to pass on. But, you know, she was accused of being responsible for the the deaths on the battlefield of 50,000 French soldiers. Um, This was a period where the French were experiencing the most um, devastating defeats in, during the First World War, 1917. You know, this was a this was the lowest period for the French army. And you know, here was this beautiful woman who was seen as profiting from the deaths of 50,000 soldiers that year, French soldiers that year, by using her, her sexual charms. Um, it also fed into these broader concerns about women generally in during the First World War, that, you know, women were um, taking jobs, taking <laughs> stealing the jobs of young men who were dying and being mutilated on the battlefields, that women were profiteering um, from all of this. So she was a brilliant scapegoat for these underlying anxieties about women in war and the highly sexualized, powerful women. The image that Matahari created of herself was very exoticized as well. Did that play a role in the way that she was seen? Absolutely. I mean, Matahari invented a persona. Um, you know, she she invented this Eastern orientalized woman um, from Burma. And, and um, what was her real background? We know? She was Dutch. Um, she, she was Dutch born. Um, she spent time in Java um, with her first, with her husband, um, her first husband again, who was very, very violent. Um, but she she was very Dutch, and it's really interesting that the commentators uh, during her trial also orientalized her. They talked constantly of her dark skin and her oriental background, even though they knew fully well that she was Dutch, white Dutch. Um, so you know they played into this. But I think the orientalizing of Matahari was actually part of her seductiveness, but it was also part of her downfall because it it castigated her as somehow, you know, dark, primitive, um, um, animalistic. And these things, you know, these huge racist things, which are deeply embedded in French society at the time, were used against her when she came to trial. Which is so interesting and and complex in the fact that that was an image that she created for herself. And everybody was aware of that fact, but still played into those tropes when they wanted to talk about her. It's very confusing somehow. Yeah, and and one of the things that I'm I'm very interested in in all of these these lectures is to look at the really prominent role that is played not only by gender, by femininity, um, and you know, going against feminine norms, but also racist agendas um, and racist tropes that actually are applied in all of the cases that I'm looked at in various at various levels. I mean, I think more so in the Matahari case than than many others, but it is you know an underlying um, issue with all of um, the 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 evil women um, I, I talk about. Um, so I might just circle us right back around to the beginning now, because um, I do want to ask you about the foundational evil woman that you discuss, Eve. How have 
biblical stories about Eve shaped perceptions of women throughout history? If there is one woman um, who has been labelled evil and is an underlying presence in particularly Western society, it must be Eve. Um, you know, she, right from you know, the beginnings to the present, she is the, the typical evil woman. She is everything that um, a woman shouldn't be. And I think what, I mean, she not only brings sin into the world, but she also corrupts man, um, she corrupts all of humanity. She has been used to oppress women throughout the centuries. You just have to, you know, you just have to think about the the, the church fathers who use the image of Eve to show and to suggest that women should not or cannot have positions of power. Women cannot speak in, in church. Women should not be educated. Women have to be um, under the thumb of the head of the household, the male head of the household. She is, she is the exemplar for female oppression. And that continues to this day. You look at the, um, I mean, go back in history, we're talking about the church fathers. You can look at, at the witch hunts um, in the early modern period, where Eve was the central thing there that, you know, these women were following in the footsteps of Eve. And there's sort of an impossible tension with these women. I mean, not all, of course, not all the witches were women, but the vast majority of witches who were who were killed were women, mainly menopausal women. And on the one hand, they were seen as bringing the inheritance of Eve into that period of history, corrupting men, being duplicitous, um, and, you know, feminine and weak, the vessels, weak vessels who the devil could enter because, precisely because they were weak vessels. But on the other hand, they were all powerful witches. They, they, they had the ability, like Eve had, of corrupting everything in their surroundings. So this weakness and yet all powerfulness, which coincide in the um, in the image of Eve. Um, and I think that's what makes her really the essential evil woman. So moving forward, one of the other really intriguing um, figures that you, you look at is the archetypal evil nurse, Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cocoon's Nest, who stands as a kind of mechanical, clinical, surgical evil, I would say. Um, do you think that reactions to the character of Nurse Ratchet can tell us something about concerns of, of the post-war West specifically? Do you see it as grounded really in the time that it was created? Yeah, Nurse Ratchet is definitely uh, grounded in very specific um, fears and anxieties about women. It's all about the Cold War. It's all about um, matriarchy taking over um, and that men, as a consequence, are being emasculated. Um, you know, the, the, they're being lobotomized. They're being not only genitally um, castrated, but they're being mentally castrated as well, which, of course, is what uh, McMurphy, what happens to McMurphy. And these are all about fears of what was called at the time of momism, um, so a very, very famous and very influential book, which was published 
in the um, in 1947 by Philip Wiley, um, which is all about the post-war fears of of moms, of mothers. Um, so momism um, is something that he railed against. And this book became a bestseller, um, you know, about we need now to put women in their place because we are becoming like we, meaning men, are becoming like women. They are taking away our power. The, the, the post-war um, problems that that men coming back from the 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 Second World War that women had taken their jobs again. This kind of reminds us of, of Matahari after the First World War. They'd taken our jobs. That boys are um, becoming um, effeminate. Um, great fears about homosexuality. The the role of the powerful mother who is smothering her male children. On the one hand, there's the momism thing, which uh, the novel in particular is really reflecting. On the other hand, there are concerns about the role of psychiatry. So this notion of the the total institution, the Goffman um, total institution, where um, there is nowhere to escape. There is no freedom. There is no frontier. There is no, you know, men out there hunting and and wandering about in the in the wilderness or in the forests or whatever. That everything has become this total institution of total control. Um, that that people are really frightened of, and psychiatry and particularly the anti-psychiatry movement of the time is actually also reflecting this. And this is very, very important in, in the in the novel in particular, but also of course in the in the filmed version. So each of these women reflects a big old melting pot of fears from the time that they were either created or they lived. Um this question, it might throw you off a bit, but I'll throw it in and we'll see what happens. But um if we were gonna, if you were gonna do a lecture in thirty years about an evil woman that encapsulated the time we live in today, what do you think that she might look like? I think I've got a negative response to that because I'm very worried about our current position with the the rise of real powerful feminist movements and. Me too, hashtag me too. I think, you know, um, women accusing um, powerful men of of sexual abuse and, and sexual harassment. I think that I do worry that in the future, people may look back and say, you know, these women um, were actually hurting men. So it's a kind of 21st century momism fear that that I have. And so I fear a backlash against powerful young women today who are talking out against this sort of casual misogyny that we see in current society. I think finally, just to give a concluding note, what would you want people to take away from these lectures? I mean, loads of people have already tuned into them. Um, You can get them for free on the Gresham site. But if people listen to all six, what do you hope that they leave with? I hope 
they are left with a curiosity about the past and a curiosity about what it is that we fear in our society and how we then sort of um, map our fears onto individual women and castigate them and stereotype them and, and cast them out from our society. I think one of the things I found just particularly exciting about doing this work is that looking at evil women really opens up um, the history, um, our history, and particularly women, the history of women and the way women have in different periods of time been oppressed and how they have fought back and how they have challenged that their designation of evil, how they've challenged their, the um, uh, accusations that they are not behaving in what is correct or in a particular feminine way. I mean, as I said at the beginning, you know, we all create evil for, every generation creates evil um, in our, in different periods. And this really can tell us a lot about the status of women, the fears of women, and the ability of women themselves to challenge the societal pressures and constraints that they that they face. And I think that's what, certainly, that's why I've enjoyed doing this series. That was Joanna Burke. Her series of lectures on evil women are available to watch at gresham.ac.uk. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow for an episode on how Henry VII fought off the pretenders to his throne. Mm-hmm.